Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 14. Since we have read Alma's and Amulek's words directly in their sermons to the people of Ammonihah in Alma chapters 9 through 13, this chapter, Alma chapter 14, is a return to the storytelling narrative. It is in this chapter that we will learn more about the response of the people to Alma and Amulek's words, and also the response of the lawyers and the ruling class. We knew without a doubt when Alma arrived in Ammonihah, in Alma chapter 8, that these people were in a state of terrible wickedness. We can only hope then at this point, now that Alma and Amulek have preached to the people in such a powerful manner, that at least some have been converted. We'll find in verse 1 of Alma chapter 14 that this happily is the case. And in fact, many of them did believe on his words and began to repent and to search the scriptures, as it says in verse 1. And his, in this case, of course, is Alma. But we know undoubtedly that Amulek's words had an effect as well. We'll discover that these converted believers escaped from Ammonihah and left en masse to the land of Sidom, as we will discover in the first verse of Alma chapter 15. So we will return to them in the next chapter. Now, however, in Alma chapter 14, it's our unpleasant task in the next 28 verses to read of the actions of those in Ammonihah who remained hardened. As with King Noah and his priests after Abinadi finished speaking to them, the people of Ammonihah's actions are almost unimaginable. This is where the similarities between these two accounts end, because as we know, Abinadi was ultimately martyred. In this case, Alma and Amulek are actually delivered in this story, but there are others, many others, who are martyred and once again are killed by fire. In this case, it is innocents who are burned and destroyed by fire, as we learn in verse 8. They are wives and children. It's those who believed or had been taught to believe in the Word of God. Adding unwittingly to the symbolism of this rejection of the Word of God, these wicked people also cast the Holy Scriptures into the fire, along with these innocent parties. This is yet one more manifestation of the course followed by those who, in the city of Ammonihah, who chose instead of the path of repentance, the path of rewriting truth, vindicating themselves through altering the legislation of the land and ultimately ridding their society of any contradictory evidence. It's very remarkable and surprising to discover that Alma and Amulek do not intervene in this instance. And of course, the interesting assumption in the text then is that they did have the power to do so. We'll learn much from Alma's explanation uh, for why they did not intervene, and we'll consult with lots of associated commentary. We'll see more evidence of Zeezrom's transformation in this chapter. Just as Alma the elder did in the court of King Noah, Zeezrom cries out in verse 7 of this chapter and defends Alma and Amulek publicly. The people of Ammonihah respond to Zeezrom's words by accusing him in verse 7 of being possessed with the devil, and they spit upon him and cast him out from among them, and also those who believed in the words which had been spoken by Alma and Amulek. They cast them out and sent men to cast stones at them. This is the point at which we can assume that they left en masse for the city, or it says the land, of Sidon. 
So we'll come back to these people in Alma chapter 15 and to Zeezrom specifically, and we'll see that in that chapter, his transformation is truly complete. We can see then that even though the bulk of this chapter, Alma chapter 14, deals with those who were antagonistic towards Alma and Amulek, that there actually is a contrast in this chapter between those who accept the word uh, that are described in verse 1 and also here in verse 7, and those who reject it. Alma 14 will discuss the fate of those ultimately who reject it, and then Alma 15 will show the other group who accepted it. Alma 14 reminds us, I think, not only of the ultimate fate of those who choose to reject the word and follow the adversary, but also the raw ugliness of their behavior as they are taken in by the lies of Satan and as they follow him and end up doing things that perhaps they never could have envisioned in the first place, persecuting innocent believers and actually slaying them. All of this in the end seems to be an attempt on their parts to quiet the cognitive dissonance and the dissonance inside of their own souls that is caused from their rejection of the pathway of repentance and instead their futile attempts to rewrite truth. Well, now as we look at the structure of this chapter, we can see in verse 1 that we're finding the reaction of the people to Alma's words, the people of Ammonihah, and we read of those who repented. We've just spoken about that, of course. We're very happy to read once again that many of them did believe on Alma and Amulek's words. In verses 2 through 5, we see the reaction of those who did not repent. Unsurprisingly, this group of people becomes angry. They're stirred up into a frenzy, and they feel aggrieved. This undoubtedly makes them feel justified in the actions that they commit. They bind Alma and Amulek with strong cords, as it says in verse 4, and take them uh, before the chief judge of the land, which is a terrible irony, and which makes Alma a type, really, of the Savior, because he was chief judge over all the land just a few years previous to this incident. It certainly is a scriptural irony to see when the lawgiver is um, brought before ultimately lesser administrators of the law and treated as a defendant, if not more as an errant schoolchild, or worse yet, a public enemy. So that's what's happening here. In verses 6 and 7, we'll read with great interest uh, what Zeezrom's reaction is to Alma and Amulek's words. We knew from chapter 11 and from chapter 12 that he trembled, After hearing and considering Amulek's and then Alma's words, we'll find here in verse 6 that this is because he began to be encircled about by the pains of hell. And then in verse 7, we will hear directly from Zeezrom for the first time since he was questioning Amulek and Alma previously. It is here when he admits his guilt. Now this almost unbelievable, this almost surreal thing occurs in verse 8, where believers in the word of God and their scriptures are cast into the fire. A dialogue then takes place between Alma and Amulek in verses 9 through 13. This is where Alma asks, or excuse me, Amulek asks Alma uh, in verse 10, how can we witness this awful scene? Therefore, let us stretch forth our hands and exercise the power of God which is in us, and save them from the flames. Alma then explained that the Spirit was constraining them from doing so. So, of course, we'll return to that dialogue and read from it later. Interestingly, at the end of that exchange, in verses 12 and 13, uh, Amulek will say, perhaps they burn us also. And Alma will address that as well. Alma's uh, spiritual maturity comes out in this exchange, by the way and his absolute fearlessness. Then in verses 14 through 17, the chief judge of Ammonihah condemns Alma and Amulek, and he questions them, uh, smites them, and then ultimately imprisons Alma and Amulek. 
While imprisoned, in verses 18 through 24, Alma and Amulek are visited on multiple occasions in prison by antagonistic lawyers and judges. They come to the the prison and they question them. Alma has just been talking to Amulek about the power of God and how the Spirit is constraining them to exercise their power. And then in sharp contrast to this in verse 19, we see that the judge of Ammonihah stands before them and says, Know ye not that I have power to deliver you up into the flames. It's a very interesting contrast. These lawyers, these judges, these professional people seem like the priests of King Noah to lose all sense of decorum and dignity, uh, much like the Sanhedrin as well. We find in verse one or verse 21 that they gnashed their teeth upon Alma and Amulek and spit upon them. And then they mocked them, saying, How shall we look when we are damned? We read in this section that Alma and Amulek are mocked and persecuted in this manner for many days, as it says. Then in verse 25, and in the final section of this chapter, something very dramatic happens, and we find here that Alma and Amulek's outcome is very different than that of Abinadi. The power of God comes upon them, as we find in verse 25. They rise and they stand upon their feet and they break the bands that bind them. Specifically, verse 26 tells us that they break, or they broke the cords with which they were bound. And when the people saw this, they began to flee for the fear of destruction had come upon them. So now the power of God is at play in this way, and the tables will turn. And those who had gnashed their teeth at Alma and Amulek and had persecuted them, uh, many of them at this point were in the prison at this time. And we'll discover here that this prison is destroyed entirely through the power of God. Its walls are rent in twain, as it says in verse 27, and all inside the prison besides Alma and Amulek uh, die. They all perish. This includes, as it says in verse 27, the chief judge, which would be the chief judge of Ammonihah, and the lawyers and priests and teachers who smote upon Alma and Amulek, uh, they were slain by the fall thereof, of this prison. At this point, Alma and Amulek returned to the city. Remember that they were beaten and starved at this point, but they're no doubt consumed and enlivened by the power of God. And as they come into the city, after all the accompanying noises of the prison being destroyed, we find in the final verse of this chapter, in verse 29, that the people of Ammonihah were struck with great fear and fled from the presence of Alma and Amulek, even as a goat fleeth with her young from two young lions. And thus they did flee from the presence of Alma and Amulek. So, that's a flyover summary of the chapter. Let's go back now to verse 1 and read the text. And it came to pass that after he had made an end of speaking unto the people, remember what has just happened here. We've talked so much about Alma chapter 14, but remember the incredible doctrines that Alma had just taught in Alma chapter 12, uh, where he spoke of the great plan of redemption in such a compelling way, and then Alma chapter 13, where he talked about the continuity of priesthood covenant making, extending clear back to premortality, and where Alma ended in Alma chapter 13 with such a powerful plea to the people to repent and to come unto Christ. So those are the words that he's just spoken, and we find here as we continue in verse 1, many of them... Uh, did believe on his words and began to repent and to search the scriptures. Reynolds and Sojal have written, an important item in the religious legacy inherited by the Nephite people was the Holy Scriptures. By way of illustration, the words scriptures and holy scriptures appear 41 times in the Book of Mormon. This treasury of truth apparently had not been seriously consulted by the people of Ammonihah, However, or its precepts would not have been so outrageously violated. So, we'll uh, read a little bit more in verse 7. 
about these believers, and with Zeezrom, their escape to Sidon. Uh, but now we turn to those who did not repent, and that's the focus of the remainder of this chapter. So verse 2, But the more part of them were desirous that they might destroy Alma and Amulek. For they were angry with Alma because of the plainness of his words unto Zeezrom. And they also said that Amulek had lied unto them and had reviled against their law and also against their lawyers and judges. And they were also angry with Alma and Amulek, and because they had testified so plainly against their wickedness, they sought to put them away privily. Again, this is such a striking illustration of these people who decided not to take the pathway of repentance, but instead to rewrite truth to accommodate their own behavior. Since Alma and Amulek's words run counter to this false truth that these people have created, uh, these people that we will learn later that are of the order of Nehor, they're doing all they can, as it says here in verse 3, to put them away privily. Ogden and Skinner have written, Many people believed the teachings of Alma and Amulek and began to change their lives, although most were angry with the prophets because of the plainness of their words or their frankness and bluntness in exposing the sins of the people. Those who willfully live in sin do not like to have their sins exposed. This people wanted to kill the prophets. Reynolds and Sojal have written the word privily here. And remember, it says they sought to put Alma and Amulek away privily. The word privily here signifies privately, in secret, or clandestinely. The passages suggest either that they were ashamed of what they were about to do, or else, for strategic reasons, that they thought it best to accomplish their murderous designs with as little publicity as possible. Uh, This, then, is in keeping with patterns that we'll read of later in the Book of Mormon that are specifically described as secret combinations. Verse 4, But it came to pass that they did not. But they took them and bound them with strong cords and took them before the chief judge of the land. So we seem to be learning in verse 4 that these people, although they sought to put Alma and Amulek away privily, they did not ultimately follow that course of action, but instead took them before the chief judge of Ammonihah. Here strong cords are mentioned, and then later in the chapter those strong cords are mentioned again, that they are burst, or that they are broken through the power of God. Verse 5, And the people went forth and witnessed against them, testifying that they had reviled against the law, and their lawyers and judges of the land, and also of all the people that were in the land, and also testified that there was but one God, and that he should send his Son among the people, but he should not save them. And many such things did the people testify against Alma and Amulek. Now this was done before the chief judge of the land. So these are their ostensible grievances. These are the grievances that the people are mentioning as they bring them before the chief judge of the land. They're saying that Alma and Amulek have disrespected the lawyers and judges of the land. They've reviled against them. Then they mention their doctrinal niggles as though these concerns really played in that heavily for a people who were so removed from the teachings of the scriptures anyway. They're carrying forward with this accusation that Zeezrom hoped to frame Amulek and Alma with when they say that he should send his son among the people, but he should not save them. And they're saying it's greatly offensive that Alma and Amulek would have taught this, even though that's clearly not exactly what they taught when Amulek said that he will not save them in their sins. Uh, The people in this regard missed that particular qualifier. We know that their reasons for bringing Alma and Amulek to the chief judge and delivering them to death, or at least to imprisonment, was their original intention, and we were told that way back at the beginning of the Ammonihah story. And and we know that the people's reasons for doing this run deeper than the stated reasons that we find here in verse 5. It's because they feel threatened. It's because the wicked taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. And the most depraved among those who have taken this pathway of rewriting truth tend to want to destroy anyone or anything that carries this message of truth and runs counter to their own actions.
Well, now as a point of great interest and kind of as a point of reprieve for us in the narrative, we'll read in verses 6 and 7 about Zeezrom. And it came to pass that, and and by the way, this is a a perfect time to read of Zeezrom because of the accusation that was just levied towards Alman Amulek. That's, That's, again, the same accusation that Zeezrom put forward. So now we'll read uh, about Zeezrom and what came of him. And it came to pass that Zeezrom was astonished at the words which had been spoken. And he also knew concerning the blindness of the minds, which he had caused among the people by his lying words. And his soul began to be harrowed up under a consciousness of his own guilt, yet he began to be encircled about by the pains of hell. So the people in verse 5 are basically parroting Zeezrom when they say that the Son of God will come and will not save his people. That was the point Zeezrom was trying to put forward, and now he's hearing it uh, being parroted by these people. And uh, this is only serving to bring him to a consciousness of his own guilt. And it says that uh, he had caused uh, this uh, misunderstanding among the people by his lying words. Brant Gardner, in his book, Second Witness, uh, explains what harrowed up means. A harrow is an instrument for tilling the soil, although unlike the plow which makes a single deep furrow, a harrow has numerous teeth and covers a broader area but more shallowly. It breaks up clods and drags out vines and other vegetable encumbrances. So metaphorically, it is a powerful image of becoming submissive and humble. Uh, Reynolds and Sojal have written this as we consider Zeezrom's uh, road to repentance. The power of repentance is wondrous to behold. It is like the miracle of spring, ablaze with glory inside the human heart. The hard incrustations deposited around Zeezrom's soul by a lifetime of sin were being dissolved away by the corrosive, cleansing power of repentance. The story of Zeezrom's conversion is one of the most truly remarkable stories in all sacred literature. Now in verse 7, we hear from Zeezrom for the first time since he was questioning Alma and Amulek, and he speaks out publicly in their defense. And it came to pass that he began to cry unto the people, saying, Behold, I am guilty, and these men are spotless before God. And he began to plead for them from that time forth. Uh, and, And we would imagine this would be really compelling to these people that had confidence in Zeezrom. But they reviled him saying, Art thou also possessed with the devil? And they spit upon him, and cast him out from among them, and also all those who believed in the words which had been spoken by Alma and Amulek, and they cast them out, and sent men to cast stones at them. It's quite amazing to see how this mob of people, uh, as it seems, how, how aligned they earlier seemed to be with Zeezrom's teachings and ideology. Now that Zeezrom has changed, uh, the people turn against him in an instant. And they do so violently. Of this instance, uh, McConkie and Millet wrote, Knowing that he has employed lying words, Zeezrom's conscience is stung by the doctrines taught and the testimony borne. His effort to right the matter by defending Alma and Amulek, however, is rewarded in the same spirit in which previously he sought to abuse and confound them, might we say that Satan is no respecter of persons, that he will turn with equal wrath upon one and all who oppose him. Now here is Reynolds and Sojal's consideration of what has happened here between Zeezrom and the mob. It is difficult for those who have been oriented to the traditions of free speech and tolerance for others' beliefs to understand why the Ammonihaites became so infuriated as shown by their conduct throughout all of chapter 14, over the words of Alma and Amulek. And of course, as Reynolds and Sojal point out parenthetically here, uh, we'll read of this terribly macabre incident that's related in verse 8 in just a moment. It is true that they had been personally attacked, but even wicked people do not customarily display such violent sensitivity to criticism. The Book of Mormon, however, throws its own light on the answer to this question. Verse 20 of the 11th chapter tells us that the judges of Ammonihah had a very special reason for stirring up the people to all manner of riotings and disturbances, inasmuch as the amount of their professional emolument 
was in direct proportion to the number of cases which they tried, it was profitable for them to keep the legal pot continually boiling. In the furtherance of this unprofessional and unethical objective, the judges apparently found the people willing accomplices. Pursuing the matter a little further, however, we might make the observation that they to whom Alma's and Amulek's words had been spoken mirrored the attitude, not only of the judges and lawyers, but also of the priests and teachers, all of whose evil alliance had brought their land into such a state of abject spiritual degradation. Apparently, the administration of justice, learning, and all uh, and of all matters of the spirit in Ammonihah had become the monopoly of this exclusive band of corrupt intellectuals, whose professional standing among the people demanded the latter's unquestioned subservience. Now here is this incident, as it is related in verse 8. And they brought their wives and children together, and whosoever believed or had been taught to believe in the word of God, they caused that they should be cast into the fire, And they also brought forth their records, which contained the holy scriptures, and cast them into the fire also, that they might be burned and destroyed by fire. I'll first read some commentary by McConkie and Millet that address the the scriptures that are mentioned in this verse, and then go to the more difficult question and the more difficult issue of what's happening here. Uh, McConkie and Millet say this is one of the evidences in the Book of Mormon that many, if not most of the believers, had scriptural records. Though there may have been only one set of metal plates, such as the brass plates, surely hundreds and thousands of other sets of records, copies, less durable but more accessible, could be found among the descendants of Lehi. So, this is of great interest. This verse is so shocking that we might uh, miss this particular detail that confirms the idea, for example, that King Benjamin uh, really was able to disseminate his address among the people of Zarahemla, as we are told that he did, and that would have been on a different type of media than metal plates. Now back to the the pathos of this terrible incident of this verse. Uh, This is from Reynolds and Sojal. Uh, Verse 8 probably qualifies for the designation as the most painful passage in the Book of Mormon. Why must the innocent suffer? More great and constructive thinking has been devoted to the answering of this single question than to probably any other question with which the human mind of man is tormented. It is possible that in this life, this supreme mystery may never be solved to humanity's entire satisfaction. The problem of good and evil is, in a sense, the mother of all other religio-ethical problems, and out of the effort put forth by great minds to comprehend it, there have sprung the supreme artistic and spiritual masterpieces of the ages. Now, as we come into verse 9, as this is going on, now that we have this image in our minds, uh, we see this exchange that takes place between Alma and Amulek. And it came to pass that they took Alma and Amulek and carried them forth to the place of martyrdom, that they might witness the destruction of those who were consumed by fire. There's almost a procedural aspect or feel to this, uh, that these people who were whipped up into such a frenzy would also do this. It almost seems like it's just a logical procedural thing for them to do when they're prosecuting the guilty. It's it's really quite stunning that they would do this. We know that Alma and Amulek were already bound, and now they're being carried forth to see this gruesome and terrible thing taking place. Verse 10, And when Amulek saw the pains of the women and children who were consuming in the fire, he also was pained, and he said unto Alma, How can we witness this awful scene? Now, just to pause at this point, let's remember that Amulek was a family man. When we think of Alma returning to Ammonihah and being taken in by Amulek in Alma chapter 8, we really, as readers, are just kind of considering those two parties, those two people, Alma and Amulek. But we do learn contextually later in uh, Alma chapter 10, when Amulek is telling a story, that he has a large household, he has a large family, and that they all took Alma in, and that Alma interacted with presumably all of them. They were all affected by his message. 
So at this point, this might be a profound understatement, really, in verse 10, when it says that Amalek was pained. And uh, this could potentially be because Amalek had, at the least, friends and acquaintances that were burning before him, and innocent women and children that were friends and acquaintances which were burning before him. And at the most, it could have been his own family or extended family that was in the fire before him. So just imagine the feeling of this as we go on in this verse. And Amulek said unto Alma, How can we witness this awful scene? Therefore, let us stretch forth our hands and exercise the power of God which is in us and save them from the flames. But Alma said unto him, and, and this is so surprising, really, as readers here. And so it's, it's our task as well to, to, with Amulek, ask this question and then to take in and to consider and accept Alma's answer. It's a difficult answer. Verse 11, But Alma said unto him, The Spirit constraineth me, that I must not stretch forth mine hand. For behold, the Lord receiveth them up unto himself. Now, again, as I mentioned in the introduction to this, uh, there, there is the presupposition here that Alma, in, in his priesthood power, he could have stretched forth his hand and he could have prevented all of this. This power was within him. For behold, the Lord receiveth them up unto himself in glory, and he doth suffer that they may do this thing, or that the people may do this thing unto them according to the hardness of their hearts, that the judgments which he shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just, and the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them, yea, and cry mightily against them at the last day. There are other times in Scripture when the blood of the innocent is personified, and this is maybe the most striking of all of them. Here's some summarizing commentary from Ogden and Skinner that will also include Zeezrom's words, and then of course will bring us up to what we've just read. Zeezrom began the conversion process. He was harrowed up. To harrow is to plow plow over hardened ground in order to break it up and make it receptive to planting. Zeezrom's heart was in effect plowed and broken. He felt godly sorrow and tried to repair what he had earlier wrought among the people, but the damage was not so easily undone. This is an important lesson. While true repentance guarantees that the Lord remembers sin no more, Sometimes it is not possible to reverse completely the consequences of past choices in mortality. On one occasion, Brother Skinner interviewed a man for advancement in the priesthood. He had made very poor choices earlier in his life, but had fully repented and was by then a stalwart. Yet, the earlier choices had cost him his wife, his children, his home, and his employment. Even though he had fully turned to the Lord, He could not get back the things he had lost earlier. That would have to wait until a future day of restoration. Ironically, Zeezrom suffered the persecution he had earlier instigated, and he had to live with the knowledge that he had caused women and children to be cast into the fire. Why doesn't choosing God here in mortality shield us from pain and suffering? When a righteous person is killed, is that death necessarily a tragedy? What are the reasons God permits the righteous to suffer? Verse 11 teaches that the Lord sometimes allows the righteous to be killed as a witness against the wicked. Joseph Smith declared, It is a false idea that the saints will escape all the judgments whilst the wicked suffer, for all flesh is subject to suffer, and the righteous shall hardly escape. It is important for us to remember or to understand things from an eternal perspective. Though a temporary loss to us, the righteous go on to a better world and enter into God's glory. President Spencer W. Kimball wrote, If all the sick for whom we pray were healed, if all the righteous were protected and the wicked destroyed, the whole program of the Father would be annulled and the basic principle of the gospel free agency would be ended. No man would have to live by faith. Should all prayers be immediately answered according to our selfish desires and our limited understanding? Then there would be little or no suffering, sorrow, disappointment, or even death. And if these were not, there would also be no joy, success, resurrection, nor eternal life and godhood. Uh, Here, Ogden and Skinner are quoting from President Kimball's book called Faith Precedes the Miracle. Uh, I'll read for it a couple more times as we go along. 
Here's commentary from the Book of Mormon Institute manual as we contemplate this martyrdom of the righteous that's taking place here. Through the power of the priesthood he held and his faith, Alma had the ability to deliver the faithful women and children of Ammonihah from their terrible deaths. The Lord would not permit him to do so, however. Alma explained to Amulek that the Lord would receive the righteous martyrs unto himself as a testimony against the evil acts of their persecutors. While serving in the 70, Elder Ronald E. Pullman affirmed that at times the Lord permits the righteous to suffer when others exercise agency in unrighteousness. Quote, Adversity in the lives of the obedient and faithful may be the consequence of disease, accidental injury, ignorance, or the influence of the adversary. To preserve free agency, the Lord also at times permits the righteous to suffer the consequences of evil acts by others. Certainly we grieve, and that's unquote, certainly we grieve to consider the deaths of the righteous who suffered at the hands of the wicked, but we rejoice in knowing of their rewards in the spirit world as well as their final state in the celestial kingdom. Doctrine and Covenants, section 42, verse 46, reminds us, Those that die in me shall not taste of death, for it shall be sweet unto them. This does not mean that there is no pain involved in the death of the righteous, but that the eternal rewards for them are so great that in comparison their pains are nothing. President Joseph F. Smith explained, It is true I am weak enough to weep at the death of my friends and kindred. I may shed tears when I see the grief of others. Uh, by the way, it's, um, I think, really enlightening to think about President Ballard's recent conference talk about the circumstances that surrounded Joseph F. Smith's receipt of his vision of the redemption of the dead. Uh, there, is, there is great personal experience that is behind what he's saying here when he says, I may shed tears when I see the grief of others. Now to continue with his words, I have sympathy in my soul for the children of men. I can weep with them when they weep. I can rejoice with them when they rejoice. But I have no cause to mourn, nor to be sad because death comes into the world. All fear of this death has been removed from the Latter-day Saints. They have no dread of the temporal death, because they know that as death came upon them by the transgression of Adam, so by the righteousness of Jesus Christ shall life come unto them. And though they die, they shall live again. Possessing this knowledge, they have joy even in death, for they know that they shall rise again and shall meet again beyond the grave. When the righteous and innocent suffer, some become critical or lose faith. President Spencer W. Kimball offered the following counsel for when we witness suffering. Quote, If we looked at mortality as the whole of existence, then pain, sorrow, failure, and short life would be calamity. But if we look upon life as an eternal thing, stretching far into the premortal past and on into the eternal post-death future, then all happenings may be put in proper perspective. Is there not wisdom in his giving us trials that we might rise above them, responsibilities that we might achieve, work to harden our muscles, and sorrows to try our souls? Are we not exposed to temptations to test our strength, sickness that we might learn patience, death that we might be immortalized and glorified. If all the sick for whom we pray are healed, if all the righteous were protected and the wicked destroyed, the whole program of the Father would be annulled, and the basic principle of the gospel free agency would be ended. No man would have to live by faith. If joy and peace and rewards were instantaneously given the doer of good, there could be no evil. All would do good but not because of the rightness of doing good. There would be no test of strength, no development of character, no growth of powers, no free agency, only satanic controls. Should all prayers be immediately answered according to our selfish desires and our limited understanding, then there would be little or no suffering, sorrow, disappointment, or even death. And if these were not, there would also be no joy, success, resurrection, nor eternal life and godhood. That, too, is from Faith Precedes the Miracle. Uh, President Kimball was so eloquent in discussing the role of suffering in our lives. He also had that great um, article called Tragedy and Destiny. Uh, Here's an excerpt out of the President Spencer W. Kimball manual that we studied in the church curriculum a few years ago. 
Um, he said, being human, we would expel from our lives physical pain and mental anguish and assure ourselves of continual ease and comfort. But if we were to close the doors upon sorrow and distress, we might be excluding our greatest friends and benefactors. Suffering can make saints of people as they learn patience, long-suffering, and self-mastery. Now, as we kind of return to the text and what's happening here, uh, as these people are martyred, and um, we'll later find that the city of Ammonihah is kind of coming apart at the seams, uh, here's something from John Welch. After being rejected, Alma was instructed to return to preach in the city, to give them the necessary warning that if they would be that they would be destroyed if they did not repent. And of course, we read that in Alma chapter eight when Alma first arrived in Ammonihah. Then, acting as the two required eyewitnesses, uh, because remember that's what the people complained of uh, when when they spoke to Alma and said, "How can only one witness?" Um, uh, witness against the, the the wickedness of Ammonihah. Alma and Amalek stood and witnessed the abominable scene of the burning of the faithful, innocent wives and children of their followers. This was a revolting experience, but it completed the case against the city and sealed its fate. Revolting is an appropriate word here, and this is a terribly ironic twist. This passage in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, which requires two witnesses, is presumably when a witness speaks out against the wickedness of the people, but there needs to be two of them to seal that witness. Uh, Alma and Amalek certainly fulfilled that role, but more deeply uh, than perhaps they even expected to, because now they're bound and being brought forward to witness in the most graphic way possible the wickedness of these people. So in that sense, Welch is saying they become witnesses in truth of the people's wickedness, just as it was expressed in Deuteronomy. Uh, Therefore, the people's case that Alma and Amulek were out of sorts with that requirement in Deuteronomy is negated here. Fred Woods has written this of this incident. Um, The people of Ammonihah sealed their imminent destruction when they shed the innocent blood of those who had believed in the preaching of Alma and Amulek or had been otherwise taught to believe in the word of God. As Alma and Amulek were forced to witness the atrocity of the few remaining repentant and righteous saints being burned by fire, Alma told Amulek they should stretch forth their hands to stop the killing of the innocent women and children. But Alma told him that the Spirit had restrained him that the judgments of God shall exercise upon the wicked people of Ammonihah in his wrath may be just. And the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them, yea, and cry mightily against them at the last day. Until this time, it was the prayers of the righteous few that had allowed the city to be spared. And that's something that uh, Alma had made clear earlier. But the wicked people of Ammonihah, excuse me, I think that's Amulek's words earlier. But the wicked people of Ammonihah were warned that when they had killed or cast out the righteous from among them, they would be destroyed. So all of this, as Woods is pointing out, is being fulfilled here. Now coming to verses 12 and 13, this dialogue between Amulek and Alma continues, but it concerns them personally. And Amulek, now Amulek said unto Alma, Behold, perhaps they will burn us also. And Alma said, Be it according to the will of the Lord. But behold, our work is not finished, therefore they burn us not. Alma seems in this instance uh, not only to be so fearless, but also in in such close communicado, we might say, with the Spirit of the Lord, that he actually knows beforehand that they're not going to burn him and Amulek in this instance. They will not suffer the same fate as Abinadi, and certainly Alma must have wondered that. Now we'll turn to the treatment of Alma and Amulek by the chief judge of Ammonihah. Verse 14, Now it came to pass that when the bodies of those who had been cast into the fire were consumed, and also the records which were cast in with them, the chief judge of the land came and stood before Alma and Amulek, as they were bound. And he smote them with his hand upon their cheeks, and he said unto them, After what ye have seen, will ye preach again unto this people? they shall be cast into a lake of fire and brimstone. 
So again, to use John Welch's words, uh, this is a revolting act by the chief judge of, of Ammonihah, and he's actually uh, sickeningly here drawing a contrast between this lake of fire and brimstone that Alma and Amulek have spoken of, and he is creating his own lake of fire and brimstone and casting the innocents into it. And he's saying, now that you've seen this, are you going to continue to tell us that we're going to be cast into a lake of fire and brimstone? Verse 15, Behold, ye see that ye had not power to save those who had been cast into the fire. Here, of course, the chief judge is misinterpreting that because they did indeed have the power to save those who had been cast into the fire, but they were restrained or constrained. Neither has God saved them because they were of thy faith. And the judge smote them again upon their cheeks and asked, What say ye for yourselves? This judge almost seems psychopathic in this case. Uh, It doesn't say that he stirred up with the anger that the others had been. He's cool-headed enough to do something that's this almost creative. And to say these things to Alman Amulek is, is really chilling indeed. So what say ye for yourselves, he says to them. And then we read in verse 16 this interesting piece of information. Now, this judge was after the order and faith of Nehor, who slew Gideon. Remember that this is the first great challenge that Alma dealt with in Alma chapter 1 in his role as chief judge of the land. It was to deal with Nehor. Uh, Later, Alma stepped away from the chief judgeship of the land, and now here he is being tried in this remarkable and sickening way by a lesser chief judge. And it turns out that this lesser chief judge is also of the order of that man that Alma dealt with in Alma chapter 1, Nehor. The order of Nehor uh, continues on, as we can see here, even though Nehor himself was executed by Alma's orders. Verse 17, And it came to pass that Alma and Amulek answered him nothing, and he smote them again and delivered them to the officers to be cast into prison. All of this, of course, is a type of the Savior himself when he will stand before the Sanhedrin and be questioned by so many authorities, both within uh, the Jewish hierarchy and, of course, from Pilate and even Herod. Herod is so curious about this Jesus of Nazareth, and yet he answers him nothing, just as Alma and Amulek answer this judge nothing. Now Alma and Amulek then are cast into prison, and we find that they're visited many times by these antagonistic characters. Verse 18, And when they had been cast into prison three days, and there's that symbolic three days, uh, the same thing happened to Abinadi, there came many lawyers and judges and priests and teachers, who were of the profession of Nehor. So order of Nehor was the word that was used before, and of course that can be likened to what we read in the previous chapter uh, with respect to priesthood. Uh, And so here we can see that it's something of a counterfeit priesthood, and in that sense we can relate it to our understanding of secret combinations that will come later in the Book of Mormon. But here it says, profession of Nehor. And they came in unto the prison to see them, and they questioned them about many words but they answered them nothing. Reynolds and Sojal have written, Here we see the professional hierarchy performing in unholy combination. The law and the church had joined together their infamous hands to weave a steel net from which no dissenter could escape. So that's their uh, very eloquent way of describing the profession of Nehor, uh, or as we've read earlier, the order of Nehor. And when it says profession, we can see, of course, that there, there was um, the, the aspect of gain, uh, which um, Mormon took pains to explain at the beginning of Alma chapter 11. Verse 19, And it came to pass that the judge stood before them and said, Why do ye not answer the words of this people? Know ye not that I have power to deliver you up into the flames? And he commanded them to speak, but they answered nothing. Once again, we get a glimpse into the character of of this lesser chief judge of the land of Ammonihah. He's consumed with his own sense of power and authority. Verse 20, And it came to pass that they departed and went their ways, but came again on the morrow, and the judge also smote them again on their cheeks, 
And many came forth also and smote them, saying, Will ye stand again and judge this people and condemn our law? If ye have such great power, why do ye not deliver yourselves? The psychology of that is amazing, and it's interesting that they entertain that possibility at all, as though there's something inside of them that that knows or wonders if Alma and Amulek truly do have the miraculous power to deliver themselves in this instance. They, of course, later in this chapter will discover that they do. Verse 21, And many such things did they say unto them, gnashing their teeth upon them and spitting upon them, and saying, How shall we look when we are damned? Utterly remarkable. These people are are clearly ideologically possessed and taken over by the spirit of the adversary here. Verse 22, And many such things, yea, all manner of such things did they say unto them. And thus they did mock them for many days, and they did withhold food from them that they might hunger, and water that they might thirst, and they also did take from them their clothes that they were naked, and thus they were bound with strong cords and confined in prison. McConkie and Millet offer this insight into this incident. How similar these devils incarnate were to those who mocked the Christ. He too was smitten upon the cheek, gnashed at, and spat upon. He too was artfully questioned by unscrupulous and double-tongued lawyers and priests. He too chose to remain silent rather than dignify their cunning inquisition with answers. And he too was taunted for not having the power to save himself from the agonies of the cross. Well might we say that the Savior and those that come in his name have received like treatment in all ages. One paragraph from the experiences of the prophet Joseph Smith will illustrate the point. Quote, The constable who served this second warrant upon me had no sooner arrested me than he began to abuse and insult me, and so unfeeling was he with me, that although I had been kept all the day in court without anything to eat since the morning, yet he hurried me off to Broome County, a distance of about 15 miles, before he allowed me any kind of food whatever. He took me to a tavern and gathered in a number of men who used every means to abuse, ridicule, and insult me. They spit upon me, pointed their fingers at me, saying, Prophesy, prophesy. And thus did they imitate those who crucified the Savior of mankind, not knowing what they did. Verse 23, And it came to pass, after they had thus suffered many days, and it was on the twelfth day in the tenth month, in the tenth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, so we get the very specific day of this, that the chief judge over the land of Ammonihah and many of their teachers and their lawyers went in unto the prison where Alma and Amulek were bound with cords. So it's very interesting how there are these repeated visits. They come and they taunt him, or taunt them and torture them, mock them, uh, spit upon them, and and so forth. And then they leave, and then they do it again. They do it again. So here's yet another visit. Verse twenty-four. And the chief judge stood before them and smote them again, and said unto them, If ye have the power of God, deliver yourselves from these bands, and then. We will believe that the Lord will destroy this people according to your words. Interesting how he says, then we will believe. Um, If they do believe, once this sign is shown unto them, they don't seem to consider that the sign will kill them. And that is what happens to this chief judge and to his cadre of followers. So when James, in James chapter 2, said, even the devils believe and they too will tremble, This will be an example of that, because they will be in another realm as devils, and they will believe, just according to the words of the chief judge here. McConkie and Millet have written, Of one thing we have perfect assurance, the last thing wanted by those who demand signs is signs. The last thing wanted by those who demand evidence is evidence. A world of signs and evidences would not soften their hearts. The leaders of the Jews sought signs, and Christ gave them signs sufficient to convince any people, yet they rejected him. Now we get to this compelling point in the story, where like with Korahor later, and with Nehor earlier, and with Sherem, we see that these sign-seeking parties are, are truly destroyed, and that the servants of God are vindicated. 
Uh, and really, we have to say that even though Abinadi was martyred, we, we most certainly saw this with uh, King Noah's demise as well. So verse 25, and it came to pass that they all went forth and smote them, meaning they smote Alma and Amulek again, saying the same words, even until the last. And again, there's something almost procedural to this, how they, they all seem to file through and do the same thing. And when the last had spoken unto them, the power of God was upon Alma and Amulek, and they rose and stood upon their feet. And Alma cried, saying, How long shall we suffer these great afflictions, O Lord? O Lord, give us strength according to our faith which is in Christ, even unto deliverance. So here's this moment when Alma finally is no longer constrained to stretch forth his hand and to exercise the power of God that's within him. He's, he is now free to do so. And notice that he never did respond to the chief judge of Ammonihah, as near as we can see in the text. And now his dialogue is as it was earlier with Amulek. Now it's not with the chief judge, but instead it's, it's between him and the Lord. Give us strength according to our faith, which is in Christ, even unto deliverance. And they broke the cords with which they were bound. And when the people saw this, they began to flee, for the fear of destruction had come upon them. So this idea that Alma and Amulek had this power latent within them seemed to be in their minds. And as soon as they start to display it, then these people begin to flee. And uh, these people clearly here are those who are inside the prison at the time, uh, even though it's not specified, because, so it, because we can tell this later in the chapter. And so these people that are fleeing are these same people that were just smiting them and reviling them. Verse 27, And it came to pass that so great was their fear that they fell to the earth and did not obtain the outer door of the prison. Uh, so this seems to precede the shaking of the earth, uh, almost like a bad dream. These people were, were unable to continue running because they were so scared they fell to the earth. Then the earth shook mightily. So as the verse continues, And the earth shook mightily, and the walls of the prison were rent in twain, so that they fell to the earth. And the chief judge and the lawyers and priests and teachers who smote upon Alma and Amulek were slain by the fall thereof. And Alma and Amulek came forth out of the prison, and they were not hurt, for the Lord had granted unto them power according to their faith which was in Christ. So as we read this and we wonder what the source of power is that allows Alma to stretch forth his hands and have this thing done, it says it is according to their faith which was in Christ. And they straightway came forth out of the prison, and they were loosed from their bands, and the prison had fallen to the earth, and every soul within the walls thereof, save it were Alma and Amulek, was slain. And they straightway came forth into the city. So a remarkable incident, and lest we miss this detail, every soul within the walls thereof, the walls of this prison, as verse 28 is telling us, save it were Alma and Amulek, was slain. So this would have to include this pathological and psychopathic chief judge of the land of Ammonihah and his following of teachers and lawyers and priests. Then uh, verse 28 gives us this, this image of Alma and Amulek literally emerging from the rubble, walking away from it, and straightway uh, coming forth into the city. The people of Amulek, or the people of Ammonihah, rather, are truly afraid at this point of these two characters, and they should be. They, they're ripe for destruction, and we'll learn in a couple chapters later that they will be destroyed by the Lamanites. Before we come to the final verse of this chapter and consider that, uh, here's commentary first from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. Elder Richard G. Scott of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles used the story of Alma and Amulek to illustrate that the Lord will deliver us from our afflictions, but only after we have proven our faith by submitting to his will. Quote, help from the Lord always follows eternal law. The better you understand that law, the easier it is to receive his helpage. The example of Alma and Amulek is enlightening. 
While striving to do good among the people of Ammonihah, they were taken captive. Amulek trusted his more seasoned companion Alma, who led him to greater confidence in the Lord. Forced to observe women and children consumed by fire, Amulek said, Perhaps they will burn us also. Alma answered, Be it according to the will of the Lord, a vital principle. But our work is not finished, therefore they burn us not. The chief judge and others over many days smote, spit upon, starved, questioned, and harassed them with mocking words and threats. Though commanded to speak, they withstood, bound and naked in silence, waiting patiently for the Lord to inspire them to act. Then the power of God was upon Alma and Amulek, and they rose. Alma cried, Give us strength according to our faith which is in Christ, even unto deliverance. And they broke the cords with which they were bound. The earth shook, the prison walls were rent, all who smote Alma and Amulek were slain, and they were freed. The Lord will give relief with divine power when you seek deliverance in humility and faith in Jesus Christ. That's out of an April 1994 conference address by Elder Scott. Ogden and Skinner draw a couple interesting comparisons um, to this incident. They say Alma's prayer immediately calls to mind Joseph Smith's prayer in Liberty Jail, only with more immediate and positive results. And here they reference Doctrine and Covenants section 121 verses 1 through 6, which do sound a bit like Alma's prayer. The deliverance of Alma and Amulek from prison reminds us of Peter's experience in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 12. Elder Holland has written this in Christ and the New Covenant. This is a significant amount of information about the Savior's ministry, especially when we realize it was given in very hostile circumstances and to a very threatening audience. So he's talking about Alma and Amulek's words to the people of Ammonihah. Yet, says Elder Holland, in that cruel and violent circumstance, it was faith in Christ that gave Alma and Amulek their strength. So now as we come to the final verse in this chapter, verse 29, we kind of see this incident from the perspective of the people of the city of Ammonihah. So so uh, up to this point, uh, we've seen this from the perspective of Alma and Amulek as they've been imprisoned and uh, we're there with them figuratively as readers, and then they're repeatedly visited by these antagonistic parties. Now our perspective shifts, and we see this from the perspective or the vantage point of those who are within the city. Now the people having heard a great noise came running together by multitudes to know the cause of it. So this this must have been, uh, of course, this was a quaking and a shaking of the earth that would have caused the prison walls to tumble in this manner. We can imagine that. And when they saw Alma and Amulek coming forth out of the prison, and the walls thereof had fallen to the earth, they were struck with great fear. So we can just imagine them emerging from this, this wreckage and the carnage of this fallen prison. Again, all who were within its walls died besides Alma and Amulek in this instance, and there was a great noise that accompanied that. So the people of Ammonihar struck with great fear and fled from the presence of Alma and Amulek, even as a goat fleeth with her young from two lions, and thus they did flee from the presence of Alma and Amulek. We read nothing more about this interaction then between Alma and Amulek and these people of the city, except that they fled. And then when we go to Alma chapter 15, we simply see Alma and Amulek in a new place. Uh, They have followed the believers to the land of Sidon. And then it's in Alma chapter 16, where we will discover the ultimate fate of the people who remained in the city of Ammonihah. Here is a parting piece of commentary as we finish this chapter that comes from the book True to the Faith that brings us back to Alma's teachings about agency uh, two chapters back as he was earlier speaking to Zeezrom, Antiona, and the people of Ammonihah more broadly. It says the influence of Ammonihah's wicked judges, teachers, and lawyers caused the death of many believers. However, their wicked choices eventually brought them disastrous consequences. All choices, both good and evil, have consequences. 
Agency is a gift from God. Your use of this gift determines your happiness or misery in this life and in the life to come. You are free to choose an act, but you are not free to choose the consequences of your actions. The consequences may not be immediate, but they will always follow. Choices of good and righteousness lead to happiness, peace, and eternal life, while choices of sin and evil eventually lead to heartache and misery. We can certainly see here that this is the case for these frightened people of the city of Ammonihah. And again, we'll discover in Alma chapter 16 that their ultimate fate is to be overtaken and destroyed by the invading Lamanites. By the time we're done reading that incident, we'll have no doubt that Alma's prophecies regarding the destruction of Ammonihah have completely come to pass. So for now, this brings us to the end of Alma chapter 14. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.